0: Well, good morning, church. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians this morning, and we're in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 that Joe just read for us. So looking forward to this text of Scripture for us as it specifically addresses us as the people of God, as the church. And so I hope that the instruction that we hear this morning will be taken deeply into our hearts and uh, heated as our brother even prayed. So four characteristics of a Christ-centered church are what we're going to look at from this text this morning. John Stott, one of my favorite writers of the last generation, in his book Basic Christian Leadership wrote the following about the church. He says, quote, there is a paradox at the heart of the church. It's a painful tension between what the church claims to be and what it seems to be between the divine ideal and the human reality between romantic talk about the bride of Christ and the very unromantic, ugly, unholy and quarrelsome Christian community that we often know ourselves to be it's the tension between our final glorious destiny in heaven and our present very inglorious performance on earth this is the ambiguity of the church. I don't know if you picked up on that ambiguity in our last song. Famous hymn, The Church Is One Foundation. It captures well the tension that that quote expresses. That we see in the church, a church that is by schisms, rent asunder, by heresies, distressed. But yet, one day there will be a church victorious that we will be a part of, and it will be a church at rest. It will no longer be a church marked, by the things that unfortunately mark it due to our remaining sin on the earth. And this ambiguity is captured not just in that hymn, but also in our text this morning. You remember last week in our passage, chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 11, right in the middle of that text, in verse 9, Paul gives us a great word of hope and encouragement. He says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. We have, by virtue of coming to Jesus, by being converted to him, by becoming his disciples, we have put off our old self, which was marked by lots of things that we saw last week, sexual, social sin, anger, slander, malice, all those things have been put off. However, in our text this morning, you'll notice in verse 12, Paul says that we are to put on the character of of what we're called to be. He says in verse 10 that we have put it on. See that in verse 10? We have put on the new self. And then in verse 12, he tells us to put it on. So what is it? Is he weird and confused here? Did did something happen between verse 10 and verse 12? Did we like take it off in verse 11 and got to put it on again? No. In verse 10, we put it on. And in verse 12, we're to put it on. This is the way the Bible thinks about Christian experience. What we have put on in our conversion, we are to keep putting on in our lives. Because conversion doesn't heal us entirely of our sin problem. It deals a decisive blow to it. It renders its power weaker in our lives, but it doesn't eradicate the presence of sin from our hearts and our lives. It breaks the dominion of sin in our lives such that we're not enslaved to it anymore and we don't give ourselves over to it as a basic lifestyle practice. However, we are called to put to death what is earthly in us and put on these new characteristics of christ likeness. So having put it off, We are to keep putting it off, and having put it on, we are to continue putting it on. That's the way the Bible reasons, and that's the way the Holy Spirit works. So we turn this morning to chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, to learn what characteristics that we, as all the individuals that make up Heritage Baptist Church, are to put on as a church. We have put these things on. There are evidences in our own assembly that we are wearing these clothes. And we are walking in this way. However, there are also evidences in our assembly that we are not walking in these ways, and we need to excel still still more. We need to keep putting on what we have put on. So this morning, we're going to look at those four characteristics of a Christ-centered church that we are to continually put on, having put them on. Number one, a Christ-centered church is clothed in the character of Christ. A Christ-centered church is clothed in the character of Christ. Let's see this in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So a few preliminary observations here. First... We are commanded to put on these characteristics. This is not something that we just pray for and hope happens. We have got to exercise spirit, empowered, faith-fueled, gospel-driven effort to make these things a reality in our lives. That's why he says, put them on. Pick the clothes up off the floor, take them out of the closet, and wear them every day. They're not going to jump off the floor and put themselves on you. They're not going to crawl out of the closet and say, hey, where are me today? It's not going to happen. We have to intentionally, deliberately, thoughtfully, aggressively put these things on as an act of obedience to our Lord. Second, but we're reminded of the grace-based motivation of this. Okay, so it's not just Like the closet is calling out, put me on now. Or the floor is calling, grab these clothes. No, God is saying, put on, put these on. It is our responsibility. But look who we are. Paul says, put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones. As God's holy ones. As God's loved ones. We are chosen we are holy, we are loved, and that reality, having that declaration over our lives, because we, as we've seen throughout our journey through Colossians, the Christian's identity is not achieved, it's received. We don't achieve our identity, we receive our identity. And God says that in Christ we are chosen by him, we are holy before him, And we are loved by him. And it's that consciousness, that identity, that's to motivate us to put on the character of Christ more, since that is what we are. So let's look at these five character traits that our Lord has and that we are to have. First, compassionate hearts. This is being sympathetic toward others. You know... Would you say that Jesus Christ is a compassionate Savior? That he is a compassionate God, that he has sympathy toward us? Well, then we as his people, as his church, are to be marked by sympathy. When we see suffering, we're to run to it. When we see people struggling, we are to have compassion on them. The most compassionate people in our own assembly, I would say, are probably those who have suffered most deeply. Because suffering yourself has a way of making you more compassionate toward others. This is the way the Bible thinks about Jesus' own compassion. In Hebrews 4, it says he is able to deal sympathetically with us because he knows what it's like to walk in our steps. He knows what it's like to suffer. So we are to put on compassionate hearts. We are to be sympathetic toward others. Secondly, we are to put on kindness. This is consideration of others. We are to be considerate of others. You know, kindness is just, it's just lacking in our culture these days. With the advent of social media and all those sorts of things, with all the good that has brought as well, nonetheless, it seems that kindness and consideration for others is altogether going out the back door with the advent of such technology. It seems like we're trapped perpetually in high school. You know, cool wins high school, but kindness wins life. Cool wins high school, but kindness wins life. So be kind. Every person that you meet, every person in this room is fighting a hidden, difficult battle. Be helpful to others. Be kind toward others. Be considerate of others. Number three, humility. Be willingly under others. That's what humility is all about. Humility is placing yourself as the servant of someone else. It is viewing yourself in a position where you are forgoing your own rights and preferences to humbly submit them to somebody else's. This means that if a church is characterized by humility as Christ is, then loving well is more important than winning the argument. And being kind is more important than being right. And being right without loving well is not right. And so humility means you first. It means a willingness to forego your own rights and preferences for the blessing of another. Number four, meekness. This means being focused on others. You might say, well, isn't that kind of like kindness? Well, I would say kindness is being considerate. Meekness is being unimpressed with yourself. It, it goes with being humble. Humble. Uh, Meekness has been defined as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. And then finally, patience. Patience is long-suffering with others. It is putting up with each other. Long-tempered responses to either difficult circumstances or aggravating people. So now notice the practical outworking of these characteristics. A person who is marked by compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience will be able, according to verse 13, to bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, will forgive them. In short, we are called upon to put up with difficult people offering them undeserved grace because this is what the Lord Jesus does for us every single moment of every single day of our lives. Do you know how difficult we are to Jesus? (laughs) We are a difficult bunch and he's had to deal with his church for a long time. Millions and millions and millions of his people and yet... Has he snuffed any of them out? Has he turned his back on any of them? Has he let any of them go? No. Has he severed relationships with any of them? No. No, because he is marked by compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so should we, so must we be, as his people who are called by his name to be chosen, holy, and loved. And notice, each of these are reciprocal duties. See, oftentimes... When we hear a list like this, and this is surely not our first go round with character traits in Scripture and the fruit of the Spirit and what we're called to be as God's people, but how quickly we can think about the ways in which other people are not doing that to us, right? They're not. I know this person's not being compassionate. I know this person's not being kind. I know this person's not being humble. I know this. Per- See, the person who should come to your mind is you and me. We should be coming to. Our, we should be self examining. How compassionate am I? How Kind am I. How humble am I? Because these are reciprocal duties. Each member of the congregation must bear with and forgive each other member. And how has the Lord borne with us? How has he forgiven us? He has forgiven us freely, unconditionally, repeatedly, with unfailing love at great cost to himself. That is the way we were saved. Freely, unconditionally, repeatedly, at great cost to himself with unfailing love, and that's the way he continues to go on forgiving us and treating us. This, then, is how we must treat each other. We forgive, we bear with, we're patient with, we're meek toward, we are humble, we are compassionate, and we are kind. You say, okay, let's talk about for a second how to do that, because I don't know about you but that's, that's warfare. That's warfare. That is heart warfare. That is internal spiritual struggle to produce that kind of life. And so what we have to do to get there, to get here, to become the kind of compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, bearing with, forgiving kinds of people is we got to obey last week's sermon. See, all this is connected, okay? We might be taking Paul's letter chunk by chunk, but we can't isolate what we've been talking about for three months from this passage because all those previous passages in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 are meant to inform how we approach this passage. So let's just take just last week and think about this. Let's, take, let's just take an, this example, okay? Say someone wrongs you, and if you spend any time at the church, it's going to happen. Any time in the body and family of Christ, you will feel slighted, dismissed, dishonored, uh, offended, whatever. It will happen. So, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? According to last week's sermon, so say you are slighted, you feel offended, you are wronged, and maybe you even try to resolve it with them. You even try, you go to the person and you try to resolve it and it gets worse. What do you do then? You'll be tempted to just back away, ignore, um, maybe want to get justice, maybe be angry, maybe engage in some of those fleshly sins in verse 8, like anger and wrath and malice. And instead of forgiving, like verse 13 says, by the way, let's just go back to verse 13 a second. I don't think it says that when we're sinned against that, we, that, that it says, you know, bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, go tell another person. I don't think it says that. I think it says forgive. So, say, but, but we're tempted to do that. I mean, that's what, that's what happens when, when we get hurt. So how does Colossians 3 from last week tell us to respond? Well, remember the two exhortations? There's one exhortation in verses 1 through 4, which is to set our minds on things above, Right? And then there's the second exhortation in verses 5 through 11, put it to death. So let's, let's walk through how that might look. So you're hurt, you've been, you've been offended, let's, let's walk through this. First thing you're supposed to do, set your mind on things above. So let's walk through this. So you say to yourself, I've been raised with Christ, having angered God, and yet he forgave me. Number two, no one has wronged, was more wronged than Jesus. And yet he could still ask his father to forgive those who killed him. And knowing that I'm raised with Christ, the one who rules over all things, he must therefore have good purposes for me in this trial, in this difficulty. So, and one day, my life is going to be revealed in glory. Because my life is now hidden with Christ and God. So even if I never get justice... For this wrong on this earth, it will be settled in heaven, and the future is immeasurably wonderful. So you get yourself out of your feelings and your initial circumstance into what you're going to be 10 trillion years from now, and that impacts how you behave in the moment. But then you put your sin to death. You don't allow your mind to dwell on what's been done to you. You move on. You don't daydream about humiliating the person who's wronged you. You move on. You don't let other friends stir you up in anger. You tell them it's best not to talk about it. And if necessary, you do something dramatic and deal decisively with your own sin. So that's, that would be an example. You set your minds on things above. You put your sin to death. So we're called to be this way as I've already said, because this is the way God is to us. And we have to forget that the church, you know, there's a lot of talk about brand building today and building your brand. So I want to use this in a reverent sense, but I think it captures a point I'm trying to make. The church is Jesus' brand. So when a marketer is brought in to, you know, help a company develop its brand and, and what's your story and what are you telling people about and who are you? They're trying to craft a narrative around that, uh, that, that company so that people know what it's all about. Well, Jesus has tethered his name to us. And so the way we interact with each other, the way we behave toward each other, is telling other people, just telling each other about him. It's preaching something to each other. And it's also preaching to other people who don't know him about something. And so we desperately need to care more about the reputation of Jesus than our own, right? Because that's what's going to motivate us to behave this way, is if Jesus' reputation is supreme and mine is not, then I need to make sure I'm behaving in a way that puts his brand on display. So the question to ask ourselves is, is God compassionate? Yes, yes. He's sympathetic toward me and my suffering. I'm to be sympathetic toward others and theirs. Is God kind? Is he considerate of you? Is he helpful to you? Yes, I am to be that way to others. Is God humble? Is he willing to forgo his own rights to serve you? Yes, I must be willing to do that for my brothers and sisters. Is God meek? Does he invite the weary to find rest in him? Yes, then we must be that way as well. Is God patient? Is he easily offended with you? Does he refuse to relate to you if you've offended him? no. So Thomas Goodwin says, it's a great quote. I read this sermon this past week. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan uh, from the 1600s in uh, England, wrote the following at the end of his sermon on the heart of Christ for the church. And he said, your very sins move him more to compassion than to anger. And I thought, am I that way toward people who sin against me? Because that's the way God is toward me. If Jesus is that way toward our sins, if our sins provoke his compassion more than his anger, which they do, then shouldn't we respond the same way when we're sinned against? Is this not an evidence that we belong to him? That the sins of others against us provoke our compassion more than our anger? Here's the fact. Think about this. Why does Paul have to give this instruction to a church? Why does he have to tell them to be kind To be compassionate, to be humble, to be meek, to be patient, to be forbearing, to be uh, forgiving. Because we need these virtues assumes that we live in a church context full of flawed, imperfect, suffering and sinning people. That's what we sign up for in church membership. Where there is no suffering, there is no need for compassion. The church of Jesus Christ, we are a suffering people. Patience would be unnecessary virtue in a perfect church. You don't have to show forbearance to people who don't irritate you. And can we just be honest? There are some people in here who irritate us. And it's only when people sin against you that you really need to forbear with them and forgive them in the name of Christ. So we're signing up. Not only to be flawed and imperfect and suffering and sinning ourselves, but also to be in a community where that's the reality. Brian Hedges, pastor, writes the following. He says, we all know that there are no imperfect churches. The problem is that we often act as if we believe there should be. Think about that. We all say it. We all know it. There are no imperfect churches, but we can behave in such a way by the way that we respond to sin and suffering and difficulty, as if there should be a perfect church. There should be one, and i got to go find it and join it. Unfortunately, it's reserved for heaven. It's going to be glorious. We're all going to love it. Promise. He says, But Paul assumes that believers will need to put up with one another's faults and failures and exhorts them to nothing less than the imitation of Jesus himself in his ever-patient, never-failing self giving love. End quote. See, the church is not a consumer good. It's not a consumer good. It's not something we try to find the best possible product for the least possible investment. That's a consumer good. That's not what the church is. The church is an incubator where we learn how to love and grow in love. It's to make us Christ-like. That's what the church exists for. That's why we have the difficulty we have because God is in the business of rounding off the rough edges, shaving us down, sanctifying us, bringing us into meekness, patience, humility, compassion, all of that that we've already talked about. So let's embrace, embrace this vision of the local church. And if God moves you on to another place, at some other point you find yourself in another assembly, do that there too. Put on that compassionate heart, put on that kind heart, put on that humble heart, put on that meek heart, put on that patient heart put on that forbearing and forgiving heart because that is what you're called to be no matter what church you're a part of, no matter where you are. So that's, that's the first point. Christ-centered church is clothed with the character of Christ. This is the character of Christ. This is to be the character of us as his people. Second, a Christ-centered church is ruled by the peace of Christ. A Christ-centered church is ruled by the peace of Christ. Let's read verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The question then becomes for us is, what is the peace of Christ? What does it mean? Well, I know my default before looking at this text this week was to assume that the peace of Christ refers to a subjective emotional sense of peace that we have by, as a result of being loved by Jesus. And certainly that's true. That's just not in this passage. That's in Philippians 4. Okay, Philippians 4, you know that verse. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. That's, that's not what Paul's talking about here. This is a different kind of peace. That's the peace of God. This is the peace of Christ. And not that they're two radically different things, but in the con- we have to let the context determine what that verse means. And if you'll notice, what's the context? Look at verse 15 again. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, comma, to which indeed you were called in one body. So it's talking about church peace. Church peace. So the peace of Christ is not referring to the subjective emotions of peace, but to the full flourishing harmony of relationships and the peace that is to characterize the body of Christ. Where does this peace come from? Well, let's look back at chapter 1, verse 20. Through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled. So there's the picture here. That's what we put on at conversion, and that's what we're to keep putting on. We are to work toward continual peace, harmony, and reconciliation in the body of Christ. Division, discord, are not the order of the day in the church of Christ. Rather, the pursuit of peacemaking is to be the main pursuit. Notice what he says in verse 15. This peace of Christ is to rule, rule, rule in our hearts. See, the heart, is where it starts, is where division and discord and trouble in the church starts. It starts in every single one of our hearts. And what we have to be allowed to, what we have to do is allow the peace of Christ to rule over our hearts. It has to be the umpire calling the shots in our lives and calling the shots in the church. It is to have functional authority. We have to tune ourselves to the peace of Christ. Think about this. You think about an orchestra, right? This is, we're getting ready to get into Christmas season. Handel's Messiah is going to be coming again, putting, putting orchestras together and all of, that, all of that stuff's going on. And and think about what has to happen in, for, in, in order for an orchestra to put on a beautiful piece of music. Okay, what doesn't happen is everybody shows up and just plays what they want to play, right? That's not the way to create beautiful music. What creates beautiful music is all these different Musicians with different backgrounds and different instruments, as they all have to come and they got to tune to the oboes. A. The oboe has functional authority, or is it B flat? Is it an A? Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> My wife and I were talking. Is B flat or A? So Jamie verifies it's A, and she's played with many an orchestra. So you have to tune all to the same to same note on this instrument. And then everybody's in tune, and now we're going to play off the same sheet of music. Here's our sheet of music, church. We're bringing all kinds of different experiences. We're bringing all kinds of personalities. We're bringing all kinds of backgrounds. We got our music. It's right here. What's blaring over top of us is the peace of Christ. Tune your instrument to it and allow it to have functional rule which means I'm not going to get easily offended because that's not letting the peace of Christ rule in my heart. If I'm easily offended, that's not a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Okay? By the way, we just came off Halloween. The funniest Halloween costume I saw. This is the funniest thing I saw. All right, so guy's wrapped completely in bubble wrap. All right? And he's got fragile stickers all over him, and he's got a neck thing that says, I'm offended. (laughs) That was the best costume it's a great idea let's do it next year all of us put on this and we'll walk across town as a public statement to our culture's thin-skinnedness okay so i don't know why i shared that but anyway so if we don't tune ourselves then to the peace of christ then we'll be out of tune and likely tune it to a real bad sounding thing and it'll result in demonic and divisive interaction. Beth Moore, you all know who Beth Moore is. She's a famous writer and teacher and Bible teacher and sister in Christ. She she took a, a took to Twitter this week and she said, "Lord, I thank you. I'd like to thank you for the multitudinous sins of all my brothers and sisters that keep me too distracted to deal with my own junk." Amen sarcastic Beth Moore is the best Beth Moore <laughs> what's her point we can so focus on the sins of others and so focus on ways we're not being treated with compassion and nobody's been kind to me and nobody's serving me and nobody's being humble toward me and nobody's that we we just mask all that and we don't deal with our own junk we don't deal with our own lack of compassion and our own lack of kindness and our own lack of humility and meekness and patience it's just everybody else's fault And if you persist in that over long periods of time, unrepentant like decades, there's time to call into question whether you're saved. Because when you get saved, you get rooted out of the center of the universe and other people become more important than you. But if you're perpetually, then who's your Lord? You still are. And everyone's supposed to revolve around you so we we embrace all this reciprocal responsibility toward one another we 're to be ruled by the peace of Christ. You know why i don't think we are as and i 'm not talking about just us in general as a church. I think our church is wonderfully blessed in many ways and we have great great growth and all this stuff and we and we are we're pursuing holiness and and all of, all of those things there's many things to be thankful about um so i'm I'm speaking more generally in terms of the church at large here, but a having our church kind of peek in on it and assess ourselves. But if you think about it, the path to overcoming this temptation to not let the peace of Christ rule is embedded in the parts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful. Thankfulness is the unstated connection that is missing oftentimes In a church that fails to maintain the peace of Christ, I can't help but wonder if there is an unstated connection between the actual practice of thanksgiving in the life of a Christian and our ability to live in harmony with our brothers and sisters. Think about this: How often are you thanking God for each other? How often are you giving grateful praise to God for for your brothers and sisters in the church? And I would say where that's been absent for a long period of time, criticism has taken its place, or at least easily offendedness and those sorts of things. Brian Hedges again says, if you find yourself discontent in your local church, is it possible that your general attitude toward the church has been characterized not by gratitude, but by complaint? What difference would it make if you regularly thanked God for each member of your church? I think it'd make a huge difference. And just to kind of bend that nail over, um, your pastors have been working for some time on getting together a new membership directory that has pictures and that will afford you the opportunity to pray for our church, four four families a day, all year long. And so that will be out before the end of this year. We're just doing some final edits and stuff, but we're going to get them all printed up and give them to you so that people who you don't know, you can get to know, and then people who you're not regularly praying for, you can pray for. And if everybody in our church would take that directory, it's going to be divided up over 29 days. And as part of that, you will take four minutes of your day, one minute, each family and pray for that family and, and give specific thanks to God that you're aware of for those families. I imagine that that would do a wonder in causing the peace of Christ to have greater rule among us. And so that's what we want. That's what Jesus wants So that's what we should want. So I just want to give a plug to that, be on the lookout for that and pick one up and put it into practice. It's not just so you'll have phone numbers and emails. As important as that is, it's that you will pray for your fellow brothers and sisters in this church whom we are called to link arm with and help each other to heaven. Number three, a Christ-centered church is filled with the word of Christ. A Christ-centered church is filled with the word of Christ. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, without giving you some sort of long explanation over what I think the Word of Christ means, I think it's clear that the Word of Christ is the gospel. Okay, The Word of Christ, the gospel, is to dwell deeply and richly in our body, in our our church, not just our personal body but our church body and the question is how does that happen how do we get the word of christ dwelling in us richly as a people does it say hearing sermons on sunday that focus on the gospel no although that's part of it because i am one of you right now teaching and admonishing us But that's not supposed to be what it's limited to. All right. Just as we can't allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts if we're not thankful, so we cannot have the word of Christ dwelling richly in us if we're not doing this. And notice there are two things that cause the word of Christ to fill a church. First, he says, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, I already said this back a couple of months ago when we were in Colossians chapter 1. And we saw in verse 28, Paul talking about his ministry. And he says, him we proclaim warning in everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we present everyone mature in Christ. That is, Paul's ministry was to teach and to warn and to give wisdom so that everyone would be presented mature in Christ. I said, don't let you think, don't don't think that that's just the pastor's job or the leader's job It's all of our jobs. And then I turned us to this passage that we're considering this morning, Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, where Paul, the same person who himself was committed to teaching, admonishing, and all wisdom, calls the church to do the same. And he says, you are to teach and admonish one another. So teaching and admonishing are the positives and negatives of word ministry. It's the encouragement and the exhortation. We are to be Encouraging and exhort. Encouraging when people who are, are struggling and exhorting them when they are sinning. So while the primary responsibility for instruction and admonition resides with the church's leadership, the pastors of the church, which is why I'm preaching to you this morning, it's by no means restricted to them. This is a reciprocal responsibility. All the members of a church have some responsibility to instruct and rebuke the other members, and they should be ready to receive such from other members as well. All Christians should teach other believers the word of God. That is your responsibility. You have got to know the Bible and be able to instruct your fellow Christians in it. doesn't mean you have to stand behind a podium and teach it. It means that in your own way, in your interactions with your brothers and sisters, the word of God should be on your lips to encourage and exhort. We have the responsibility not just to grow ourselves, but to help our brothers and sisters grow. And we will not grow as we ought to grow if we're feeding off of one sermon a week. We have got to feed ourselves, grow spiritually, and encourage one another in this pursuit. So what does that look like kind of practically? Well, I'll tell you what, it doesn't happen through a church program. You can program it all day long and it won't happen. Program it all day long. It's going to have to happen when the individual members take responsibility for themselves and work it out in their own ways and in their own context. So, but the first and most obvious area this occurs is what we're doing this morning, right? It's singing. You see that, teaching and admonishing one another, verse sixteen, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's the first way we obey this. So check mark, we did it this morning. If you sang with thankfulness in your heart to God, you were a means of teaching and admonishing one another. And when you remove your voice from that by not showing up at church, that's what happens. You you are removing the opportunity to teach and admonish. Say, pastor's still going to preach. They're not going to miss me. Your voice is missing. Your voice is missing. Lend your voice to this assembly. Sing out with all your heart the wonderful truths of the gospel, and you will be an immense encouragement to your brothers and sisters. Have you not had that as your experience? Of course. You come in cold, you come in indifferent, you come in kind of lackadaisical, and all of a sudden we start worshiping and you're looking around and you're seeing your brothers and sisters singing and your heart begins to get engaged. It's because your brothers and sisters are teaching you and admonishing you in that moment. Hey, Jesus is here. Let's sing. So our singing has a teaching function for each other. As Jonathan and the team select songs each week and they're trying to put words in our mouth that exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, they're also thinking, will these words bless each other? Will these words encourage one another? Good songs and hymns summarize God's word and by singing them, we're speaking God's truth to each other. So we must sing with this in mind. Do you sing with this in mind? It's not just you and Jesus in here. It's you and everybody else in this room. Well, I don't like to sing. You know, my voice doesn't sound good. That's not the point. Sing out with your loud, off-key voice and bless the Lord, and you will bless us. We're not paying attention to who's on key and who's off key. Wow, that, guy, that brother tried to go up for harmony. He missed it way bad. I know I have. Sorry to the people sitting in front of me. I've missed it. It's like, you better slow down and calm down because that's nasty. Get back on key but I try. <laughs> but it's not limited to our singing, okay? We teach and admonish one another in lots of ways. Let me give you some examples. We can meet for coffee with a brother or sister weekly to read a book together and pray, or, te- or read a book together and just text. I've done that with a number of people in our church. Hey, let's read this short book together every day, five pages. Text me what you learn. I'm going to pray for you. And we've done that through different little things. I think it's, you don't have to meet. We got things like this. It's awesome. You can encourage people through this. I mean, Paul didn't have that in his day. They had to literally get together. And that's important too. But we can use technology and just grab a brother or sister. Say, hey, let's do something together. Let's listen to something together. Let's read something together. Let's read a passage of scripture together. Let's just send what we, you know, every morning, every evening, text me what you, what you pulled from that and what I can pray for you. Engage your children in those ways. Share in small groups and in Sunday school. This is why Pastor Keith and other Sunday school, t- they'll open it up. They open it up to allow people to speak because he's not the only one teaching in there. We're all teaching. We're all giving instruction. Lead out in prayer on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. Your, te- your prayers have a teaching function. They're teaching the church. Fill your informal interactions with questions about a fellow brother or sister's well-being. How are you doing spiritually? How can I pray for you? Go after somebody that you know who is wandering into sin or flirting with sin, whom you have a relationship with. And then, if needed, reach out to another brother. And then, if needed, come to the elders and tell it to the church. So this passage presents a remarkably balanced formula for healthy relationships in the church, doesn't it? If we would seek to obey this passage and put it into practice, think about it. We are to be characterized by compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love. But that love also requires that we be willing to instruct one another and correct one another as needed. Each of us will likely have a tendency to default over to one or the other. We'll either be Captain Truth, No Love which is, you know, got to correct everybody and tell everybody, you need to learn how to be compassionate and patient and kind. And then there are other people who will be, you know, captain love, no truth. Just, you know, let it, let it happen and, you know, we don't want to get involved and all that stuff. And, and so we'll, we'll tend to, so know yourself here, we'll, we'll, we'll default to one over the other. But the key is that we must be both. We must not settle for love at the expense of truth or truth at the expense of love. The biblical prescription is this, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love we build each other up. So lastly, let me get to point number four and then we'll be done. So we've seen that a Christ-centered church is clothed in the character of Christ, it's ruled by the peace of Christ, and it's filled with the word of Christ. Finally, it's concerned for the name of Christ. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want you to notice something. We're going to come to this Next passage, next week, Lord willing. But I want you to notice what verse 17 says. Whatever you do, context in the church, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we are to be representatives of Jesus. We are to do things in the church as representatives of Jesus to each other. Now, notice verse 23, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So we are to do it as his servant. Now, you notice the difference between those two? Notice verse 17 and verse 23. Verse 17 says, I am to treat my brother or sister in the church of Jesus Christ as if I were Jesus himself. And verse 23 says, I am to treat my brother or sister as if he or she were Jesus themselves. So in verse 17... I give respect and courtesy, which Jesus would give them because I'm representing him. And then in verse 23, I give them the respect and courtesy that I would give to Jesus because that's who they are. This is radical for relationships. This will radically change the way you interact with your brothers and sisters if we think this way. You know why we don't think this way? Because we're looking at our brothers and sisters as human beings only. We're not think of them as Jesus. All right? And Paul says we got to think about them as Jesus. You want an exegetical argument for that? Look at verse 11, chapter 3 verse 11. Here, that is in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. That's who we are. We're Christ representatively to each other. We're not literally Jesus. We are representatively Jesus. So we need to introduce Jesus to both ends of all of our relationships in the church. On the one hand, we serve in the name of Christ as if we were Christ. And on the other hand, we serve for the sake of Christ as if if though we serve, were Christ. And we're serving him. So in any relationship, Jesus Christ is in both people. I am to treat you as if I were Christ and I am to treat you as if you were Christ. What impact would this make on our relationships if we committed ourselves to view each other that way? I am Christ, and you are Christ. I am his representative, and I am his servant. The only thing that will cause us to do that in, in, in the upper, is the uppermost concern for the name of Christ above all other wants, all other desires, and all of their wishes or preferences. Living in community, let me conclude, okay? I'll conclude with this. Living in community is not easy with our fellow believers. As Tim Lane and Paul Tripp have written, we have a love-hate relationship with relationships. The problem is that we usually approach church with a set of ideals and expectations that are unrealistic. And we need to orient them to biblical expectations and ideals. So here's the question that I want to conclude with is, will you, will I, will we submit ourselves to the process of reorienting our thoughts, expectations, and practices around Jesus? We're called to do everything for his honor and his praise and in submission to his lordship. And when our church is clothed with the character of Christ and ruled by the peace of Christ and filled with the word of Christ, we will glorify the name of Christ and represent him well to our city. And isn't this the point of it all anyway? Let's pray. Father, may the hope of Christ keep Christ at the center of our church. And may we follow our Lord's example by your grace of patient, humble, self-giving love, tuning our hearts to his peace, filling our teaching and conversations and worship with his gospel, all for the glory of your great and worthy name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.